Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. Welcome, and today we have Mark Choi from Ghost Kitchens Brands. And today it's uh, a little different in that Mark is understanding that he is a social innovator and a social enterprise together with the CEO and co-founder, or founder, sorry. And welcome, Mark. Thank you, Peter. I'm happy to to join and and, uh, share more about our business model and and how we have an impact on the on, on the social economy. Great. So let's start with your education first. Where did you go to post-secondary school? Well, I went to a long time ago. I went to the University of Western Ontario, out in London, Ontario. Um, I know they've since changed their name to Western University, but when I went there in the good old days, it was the, the UWO, and uh, so I'm a proud graduate of, of, of that school. In what area, Mark? Uh, I graduated in economics. Um, you know, when I did graduate, um, you know, I, I wanted to go to business school, but that wasn't in the cards for me. Um, so I, I, I graduated with a degree in economics, not knowing exactly where that would take me, but uh, I always had a, an interest in entrepreneurship, on, on business ownership, and on finding, you know, different ways to, to make an impact on, on people's lives. Okay, so you graduated from Western Mm-hmm. So let's get into your work experiences. Well, I think, you know, something that was important before, once I graduated and before I started working, one of the things I think was important for me was um, I did the stereotypical uh, backpacking tour of Europe. And, um, you know, I, I took three months to, to backpack across across the continent. And I, I think that was important on, on, you know, a number of different levels. I think it was important for me to um, sort of get outside the Canadian bubble um, you know, I grew up in southern Ontario, went to school in London, Ontario, um, you know, sure, been on vacations, but I think it's important for, it was important for me, and I would encourage it for everybody to, to learn that, you know, the world is a bigger place, and, you know, the, the people, the citizens of the world don't live like they do in Canada all the time. Uh, we are fortunate to have, you know, a much higher standard of living here, um, so I do think it's important, though, that you know, we open our eyes up a little bit and, and, and travel the world. And I think that was important for me, again, to see how other people lived and, um, you know, and, and the impact of, of business had on, on their lives. Um, so I did that for three or four months. Uh, when I came back, um, I knew I wanted to run my own business. So my dad, he had a, a lighting company, but he staked me to some money and I bought a couple moving trucks. And so from there, I started my own little moving company um, you know, we would back then we would advertise in Toronto Sun, the Toronto Star, uh, you know, two men for hire, and and I did that for about a year. And again, I, I think it's you know, no matter what part of business you get into, if you're going to be a, a CEO one day or a vice president or, or whatever, I think operations at the end of the day are, are the, the most important part of the business. So I, I valued my time, you know, moving people's stuff. Um, during my couple of years as a mover, I moved pianos, moved boxes, moved you know, televisions, moved everything. Um, and I, I think, again, a very valuable role to understand, you know, when you're running your own business, you know, you're responsible for hiring, for firing, 
Uh, you deal with customers on a minute-to-minute level, uh, so you get to understand some of the trials and tribulations of, of customer service. And so, again, even though it was only a short period of my life and a long time ago, again, I think another valuable experience and, and, and stepping stone to, you know, where I am right now. Um, from, from there, I started with a company called uh, Manchu Walk. Um, they were owned by Scott Foods, who also owned, I think, Frito-Lay and Pepsi at the time. But the division that I was involved in was, uh, was Manchu Walk, the, the Chinese food restaurant that's very commonly found in, in shopping malls across North America. Um, I was a, a training manager there and uh, training future franchisees. And then one day, I think I sort of got my, my big break in, in one sense. Uh, Manchu Walk decided to open up a location in uh, Stone Road Mall in Guelph, but they couldn't find a franchisee. So they were going to open it corporately because they were committed to the lease. And so they sent me out there to get the store up and running. Um, I got the store up and running, up and running. Um, sales were quite good from, from day one. And so I, I negotiated a deal with Manchu Walk Head Office to become the franchisee and, and buy that location. And uh, I operated that location very successfully for six or seven years. During that time, I, I purchased a couple more uh, Manchu Walks and, and other businesses. And so eventually I became, you know, sort of a, a multi-franchisee owner, which again, I think is uh, invaluable to, uh, um, to having a career in the business world because you get to understand, you know, the cost of doing business. Um, everything isn't like it always seems on a spreadsheet. Um, there is no replacing the experience of, again, dealing with staff, uh, dealing with customers, uh, dealing with the ebbs and flows of, of business on a day-to-day level, uh, you know, being forced to make payroll, being forced to make rent. Uh, again, nothing can replace that experience of actually doing it. So, you know, I did enjoy my, my six years running, you know, multiple Chinese restaurants. Uh, I still miss the food from back then. I, I do crave Manchu Walk all the time. And so if I'm ever doing some Christmas shopping in the mall, uh, if, you're, if I'm in the food court, you're sure to find me at, uh, at the local Manchu Walk trying my, my fried rice and, and chicken balls. Um, but I will say you also learn you know, a work ethic there. And it, it was a grind. When you own your own business, it's uh, certainly the buck stops with you. And if somebody doesn't show up or if you run into supplies, it, it ends on your desk. Um, so I did that for six or seven years. Uh, that was before I had kids. Um, once I started having kids, uh, the demand of, of running a few restaurants and, and, and having a, a young family became, became a challenge. So I, um, I sold my restaurants um, as a group, and I, I joined uh, Quiznos Subs uh, in operations. And my role back then was uh, to train franchisees, uh, to coach franchisees, um, and to build their business. And again, I think it was another valuable step. And so for the next two or three years, all I was doing was working, was working with franchisees to, to help to, to coach them to build their business. And sometimes it went very well. And sometimes for different reasons, it, it did not. And you could certainly see the impact um, of having a successful or unsuccessful business had on people in their lives. And certainly, you know, I did, unfortunately, I saw some cases where you know, families invested everything they owned in the business only to have it go uh, not as well as anybody anticipated. And, you know, it has a great social impact, negative impact uh, on those families' lives. When you see, you know, uh, relationships uh, impacted, uh, you know, equity destroyed. But at the same time, you know, I dealt with many franchisees who own one location, own two locations, bought a third location, 
and they were able to build up their their equity and you know make you know make something of not only make something of the lives because it's not fair but to have a, a huge impact on, the, on their lives and they had business going well so they employed their kids and friends their families and they became pillars of the community and so it was always very exciting to uh to see that um you know at Qu- quiznos then I, I transitioned into to franchising where my role became to you know sell franchises sell franchises to two families and you know what i enjoyed most about that role is um as i sort of talked about you know i had an opportunity to actually make an impact on people's lives and you know i don't i don't like to think of myself as a typical salesman but there were many cases where we sold franchises where i knew it was going to be a great fit for that for that family and i knew it would have a, a great impact on, on their life in a, in a positive manner and so that was again another another important role in my career um, by the time I, I ended up at Quiznos, I was there for probably 16 years. Um, I ended up as the senior vice president of global development. And so I went working with uh, small mom and pop franchisees um, and getting them going to dealing with larger, you know, multi-billion dollar corporations to, to partner with them to, uh, to grow the Quiznos brand. Companies like HMS Host put Quiznos in airports. Companies like, you know, Walmart put Quiznos as their food service partner. Uh, Fedexo Compass to offer food service on colleges, uh, you know, airports, travel centers. So it was a, a long career with Quiznos, but I, I really enjoyed it. And I think, it, you know, it, it taught me a lot and, you know, made me feel good because I had an impact on, uh, again, on people's lives. Uh, from there, um, you know, I'm now with Ghost Kitchen Brands. And, you know, we are growing our Ghost Kitchen business to bring uh, national brands to uh, buy delivery. To, to people wherever they might be at their office, if they're shopping, well, they're not shopping now, or their homes if they're not able or unwilling to uh, to, to get out. And, okay. You know, while we are a well, hold yeah. on for a minute, Mark. <laughs> a lot of our, sure. you've got a long career. Uh, so, for many of our listeners, they have no idea what you're talking about when you say ghost kitchen. Can you explain that, please? Sure. So the, the term ghost kitchen, uh, it can also be used interchangeably with terms like dark kitchen or virtual kitchen. And essentially the way this historic, historically this, this industry started was they were a kitchen that served food by delivery only. So they had no dining room, they had no seating, they had no pickup, they had no walk-in. And they were typically located more maybe in industrial areas or in unused kitchens. So kitchens that like maybe at a banquet hall that wasn't used all the time. So companies would go in, use these kitchens, prepare menus, and then sell them via third-party delivery typically. So using providers like uh, Uber Eats or Skip the Dishes or DoorDash. Um, the reason they're called, again, dark or virtual is if you were a customer out and about, you would never see these kitchens. They didn't have you know, customer-facing locations or signage. They could be located anywhere. And that's how the industry started probably three or four years ago. So in your case, how did you get involved with Ghost Kitchens? Well, let me, let me talk a little bit about our, our particular history. You know, you mentioned George Kodas, our founder. Right. Um, he started up a series of Ghost Kitchens, just like I described. They were, what, what he likes to say, the, the cheapest rent in the worst location. But as long as they had a kitchen facility, he could prepare meals there. And so he started about three or four years ago, and he opened up a series of these types of kitchens. 
the food he served were, were menus that he'd made up himself. So they might have been, you know, Harry's hamburgers, Mark's shawarma, uh, Peter's uh, pasta, whatever it may be. He, he created these own menus, and he, again, he marketed them through Uber Eats, Skip the Dishes, and DoorDash. Uh, back then, when the when the industry was in its infancy, the only people really doing third party delivery were small ghost ghost type kitchens. Over time, the last two or maybe one or two years, all the national brands started getting into the ghost kitchen industry. So you saw McDonald's selling their food on third party delivery out of their existing franchise location. You'd see every major brand got into third party delivery. And George, you know, obviously found that his brands were not, not getting any visibility anymore. So he pivoted his business model uh, because he knew there was still a demand for, for, from consumers for, for brands. He pivoted his business model and he stopped doing the internal brands. And he started working with national chains that didn't have their own distribution like McDonald's. And so I joined uh, George back in February. And since we've joined, we've added some brands like uh, Cinnabon. Cheesecake Factory Bakery, uh, Quiznos, uh, Ben and Jerry's, um, Salad Works, Amaya Indian Street Food. So all of these are, are brands which you know customers know, but never had access to because they don't have their own distribution. You know, an example would be Cinnabon. I think there's only 12 or 13 Cinnabons in all of Canada. Everybody knows Cinnabon. Everybody who doesn't like a good Cinnabon, the smell, the taste, the texture. But unless you were inside a shopping mall, it was difficult to get a Cinnabon. Now, with our network of kitchens, we can offer a Cinnabon to anybody who wants it within 30 minutes via Skip the Dishes, DoorDash, or, or any of our delivery partners. Uh, you know, the same goes for Quiznos, Cheesecake Factory Bakery. We have the ability to, to offer all these brands to consumers whenever they want because otherwise they would be, it would be hard to find. Um, you know, we started doing this before... COVID and the whole pandemic and the lockdown hit um, and business was good, but I think we've been able to, it's become increasingly important for us because now, again, everybody, as you know, Peter, and as we talked about, it's becoming more and more of a challenge for people to be able to get out to restaurants, to food. Um, you know, there are, you know, instances of, of, of mental health where, where people are, are becoming frustrated that they can't get out and, and socialize with their friends um, and not that we solve all these problems, but, you know, we are a little step towards helping people make their life a little bit normal by getting all these brands that they may want to try or may want to eat that they couldn't, can't normally get. So technology has to play a major part in what you're doing. Can you talk about that a little? Absolutely. I mean, we consider, you know, a lot of ways we consider ourselves more of a technology company than an actual a kitchen or a restaurant. And so we have, we do rely a lot on technology. Uh, there's the obvious interaction we have with, again, the third-party delivery partners, like Skip the Dishes, Uber Eats. Um, that's a technology that, that consumers use. So if you're at home, Peter, with, with your family and, and you want to order something, you go on Uber Eats and you place an order. That, that order is, is sent to us through the Internet and, and Wi-Fi. And then we certainly have a tablet at our, at our kitchen saying, you know, Peter's ordered two Cinnabon and a, and a Quizno sandwich, can you please prepare that? And so we get the order, you know, we click on it, we prepare the food, we contact the driver, the driver using another form of technology comes and, and picks it up and, and takes it to you and in half an hour you have whatever food, whatever food you'd like. 
And so technology does play a, a big role there. Um, you know, there are no other kitchens doing what we do uh, with as many brands as we have from a single location. So, for example, you know, we probably have 50 or 60 different tablets ringing with orders in our kitchen at any one time. And so we've become heavily um, invested on making sure all our technology is, is seamless. And that goes to everything from, from Wi-Fi um, to, to setting up training tools. Um, in our kitchen as well, I mean, we have, because we're almost like a virtual food court now, we, we've also moved to locations where um, they are where the consumers are. So we've started to take locations away from the industrial areas going to shopping areas, retail areas, commercial areas. And because we are like a, a virtual food court, we have seen people start to walk into our stores to want to order. And so one of the ways that we use technology to take advantage of that is we have no customer interaction inside our kitchen. It's all done with kiosks and QR codes. So if, if Peter, if you, know, if you were at the, your office and there was a ghost kitchen there nearby and you walked into our ghost kitchen, you'd be greeted by a video wall with all our products and you'd be greeted by 55-inch touchscreen kiosks where you could go and, and order and have, a, um, have an option to choose from, from all our brands. And again, that's another way that we've, again, trying to uh, make the shopping experience better and more efficient for the consumer. But as it turns out, it's also safer for the consumer because there's no interaction with uh, a staff member. So there's no, you know, Peter, how are you? What would you like? Would you like this with that? You know, how are you going to pay? There's none of that. It's all done on a kiosk. And for those customers who, who don't want to use the kiosk for safety reasons or because it's busy, we also have, as everybody's seen these days, QR codes inside our, inside our kitchen. So either from inside our kitchen in the lobby or from outside where, because we have them posted on the windows, you can use your smartphone to scan a QR code and to place your order on your phone. And you have the same, same experience that you would have on our kiosk where you can order from all our brands on one delivery or one fee. Um, so I guess, you know, the short way to answer your question, Peter, is, yeah, we're a technology company, and, and we, we continue to try to find different uses of technology to make the ordering process uh, more convenient and, and safer for, for everybody. Okay, great. Now, the other question that I'm sure everybody has the same question, inventory. How do you manage inventory for all of those brands? Well, inventory and supply chain can be quite cumbersome when we add up all these brands. Um, all these brands, as we said, have, have great brand equity, and they've all done things the way they've done things for many years, and our intention isn't to change that. So for every one of our brands, we do, they do have their own supply chain, and so there are times that our kitchens are dealing with four, five, six, seven, eight different distributors, each with their own delivery dates, their own credit terms, uh, their, or, their own ordering cutoff times. So to your point, it, it does become very messy. And so, again, we've, we've tried to use technology there um, to make the process as simple as possible. You know, for example, for inventory control and for ordering, you know, we've partnered with a company called Chef Hero, where they've brought all our ordering and all those things that I talked about in terms of delivery dates, cutoff times, all onto one single tablet. So our, our staff member or manager just goes to one tablet, says, I need, you know, bread and tomatoes. And the Chef Hero technology takes care of sending that order to the right vendor um, before the right time. And so our manager just has to tell the, the, the tablet what we need, 
And Chef Hero's technology that we partner with um, takes care of all the, the billing, the, the delivery cutoff dates, the, the right vendor, and the pricing. And so, you know, that's been uh, a huge uh, time saver for us. Um, but again, to your point, it's, a, it's another way that, you know, technology has, has benefited us. Otherwise, it would be a sort of a paper nightmare. You know, we are building our own proprietary POS um, so that when orders come in, uh, it's tied to our inventory system. So the back of the house, they can say we've sold 22 chicken sandwiches today. We're going to need more chicken. Let's put that on the order on the order guide for next week. Um, if we sold this many tomatoes, we need more tomatoes and send the order out to our, our vegetable supplier. Um, and at the same time, at the end of the week, we may do a physical inventory and say we have no tomatoes left. We can check our POS and it should tell us exactly how many tomatoes that we should have used for all the orders that we got during the week. Um, you know, that software is a bit more robust and sophisticated, and so it's, it's an ongoing learning curve for us. But again, another way that, you know, certainly technology is going to help us through some of our operational issues. So, Mark, looking at your uh, website, there seem mm-hmm. to be a number of locations. How many have you got now? We have uh, 15 locations right now, um, six in Alberta, uh, nine in the, the greater Toronto area. Um, in Toronto, we've probably opened up, of those nine in Toronto, we've probably opened up six of them in the last uh, two or three months. Um, so we are, are growing very, very quickly. Um, I'd imagine a month from now, we'll have another six or seven open. Um, and we have a number of um, our business plan for 2021. I'd expect we're going to have at least 150 locations open up in Canada and the United States by the end of next year. Um, so it's <laughs> fairly significant growth. Um, and so, you know, we're thankful that we have a couple of, uh, um, equity partners and funding partners and, and options there, as well as, um, uh, a big landlord partner that we hope to, to announce in as soon as two weeks. Um, but until the deal is signed, um, you know, it's sort of hush hush for now. Um, but I'd be happy to share that with your listeners in a couple of weeks if, um, you know, if you think they're interested. Uh, but certainly we have uh, a, a lot of growth planned. You know, we're going to be opening inside some, some retail partners, uh, shopping areas, uh, commercial areas. Uh, again, anywhere where you can find, uh, find people, uh, find opportunities for delivery. Um, you know, we do think of ourselves as a, the only and the original virtual food court where you can order from all these menus and one delivery and one fee or in one place. And there's no other ghost kitchen or restaurant model out there like us. And so I think we do have, uh, you know, an offering that's, that's of interest to consumers who are out and about or consumers who are, you know, unfortunately, you know, um, forced to stay at home. So are all of these outlets uh, franchise or some company owned? No. So we don't have, none of them are franchised. And so a lot of them, a lot of the, the kitchens that we've opened we have what we call co-investors where we partner with each one. And so it's not like a franchise where you, you know, you pay a royalty to the franchisor. We're, we're co-investors in a number of these locations. Um, our plan is to open more and more of them corporately where we own them outright and we can control the operations and, and the finance and, and the execution. Um, but we don't have, we don't have any, any franchises. Um, one of the challenges, because I come from a franchising background, one of the, the frustrations I had with the franchising industry was, um, I felt the goals weren't aligned. Uh, and that's say, you know, franchisers, their, their goal is to grow sales and grow the brand. 
and they take a percentage of sales, uh, which is great for them. Uh, unfortunately, with my background as being a franchisee and, and seeing the impact it had on, on, on it can have on people's lives, um, the franchisee is only concerned about profitability. They don't really care about sales. And, and so in my, in my view, the interests of the franchisee and the franchisees are not aligned at all. One's concerned about sales, one's concerned about uh, profit. And I, I didn't really enjoy that. When sales are good and, and, and costs are down, then, then it's a great model for everybody. Um, but all too often in that model, again, they have different, different interests. And so, for example, with some of our kitchens where we have co-investors, um, our interests are, are perfectly aligned. Either the kitchen makes money and we both make money, or the kitchen doesn't make money and we're both putting in money. But uh, I would never ask one of our co-investors to invest in a new piece of equipment or, or launch a new brand unless I was convinced it was going to make money, it was going to be profitable. And so, again, our interests are aligned. And so they know that I'm not saying we should do a two-for-one special just to artificially boost sales so my royalties are higher. I'm only going to ask them to do a special if, if it makes money for both of us. And so that's one of the reasons why George and I were in agreement that if we were going to grow at the beginning, that if we couldn't do it corporately, we looked at a new business model where, you know, we felt good about talking to co-investors about, um, about why it made sense for everybody. So, Mark, you're the president for Canada. Is it the game yeah. plan to have a president for the U.S. market? Um, I, I think so, and I think, you know, the, the business plan is, is continuing, continuing to evolve. Um, certainly, you know, the COVID, COVID and the lockdown has had an impact on our, our plans. Um, I do think that both George and I are going to be spending a lot of time in the U.S. Uh, coming up once we can figure out if we can or can't travel. Uh, one of us actually may have to move to the United States so to avoid the cross-border travel, um, but we are going to have a lot of growth in the U.S., and we are working right now on our business plan and, and how we're going to structure that. Uh, you know, we may find, have to find, they may have to find another president of, uh, uh, of the U.S. US group. Um, you know, right now the way we're structured is we have Ghost Kitchen Brands, which is the, the parent company of Ghost Kitchens America and Ghost Kitchens Canada. Um, and so, again, we're working on our structure right now, but um, certainly there's going to be um, a lot of room for a lot of talent to come on board because, as I sort of mentioned earlier, you know, we have significant growth plans and we have the ability to, uh, to, to execute them as long as we can find the right people and put them in the right places with, uh, you know, the right ability to, to succeed. Okay, it's quite a story that you've got going, Mark, and a, a very unique business. How do people uh, reach your website? Yeah, so if anybody has more information or more interest in us, uh, they can always go to our website, www.ghostkitchenbrand.com. Dot com, and certainly they can go on there and find out more information about us and a little bit about, about what we do. Um, the industry certainly is very new, and our model is very new as well. So sometimes it might take a little bit of uh, uh, research and, and discussion to fully grasp what we do. Um, so if anybody has any interest, start with the website. If they want to reach out to us, there is a, a generic website or a generic form they can fill out, info at ghostkitchenbrands.com where if they reach out with their questions or their interest, somebody will get back to them with, um, with some answers. Well, Mark, uh, a very interesting story, a very interesting career, a big future ahead of you. And I'd like to thank Mark Choi for his time today to tell us such a great story 
as a social innovator and now a social enterprise. So thank you very much for joining us today, Mark. You're welcome, Peter. I'm happy to share with your listeners anytime. Thank you.